Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on the right side, or TRSI, as we are now uh, now listed on Spotify. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Uh, again today, I do have to say that for those of you who have been asking about subscribing to the podcast individually, as opposed to all of the gripped podcasts, we have now put in place a solution, so you can stop emailing me about that. Uh, it is, I will put a direct link to the Transistor FM RSS feed in the description of this on the Grift website, and I believe you can now find us on at least Spotify as a TRSI, and hopefully it will also be going up on um, Apple and various of the, the Google ones as well over the kind of coming week. Uh, this will also be happening with all the other Grip podcasts, so if there is any of the other Grip podcasts you really liked, but you never subscribed to them because you used to have to subscribe to every Grip podcast. You are now living in a better world, my friend. A world of choice. Mm. Anyway, a couple of things today. Uh, Michael has a particular interest in a discussion on the seasonality of COVID-19 and what that might mean for its spread. Uh, I want to briefly talk about the Woody Allen issue. Uh, Woody Allen's book got cancelled. Um, he had been with a publisher called Hatchet or Hackett. I'm actually not sure how that's pronounced. <clears throat> and they had they pulled his um his publishing deal with them after they received substantial internal pushback because they also publish a book by Ronan Farrow, who um of course has that familial relationship with Alan, and he objected. And that in itself is only relatively interesting. But the Irish Independent went to the Irish publishing scene and asked multiple people about it, whether or not they thought it was the right decision. And um, there's a couple of doozies in what those people say about what free speech is and if this was the right decision that I just want to touch on, because these are the people who oversee publishing of books, and therefore their views on this, despite being incredibly ill-informed, are worth going into. But, Michael, seasonality of... COVID-19, is this just going to wash away with the rain? <laughs> uh, let's not get quite that carried away. As I look out my window in the sunny southeast, I see daffodils, uh, I see early roses, I see a beautiful pink cherry blossom on the cherry trees. It's a, much like being in the old quarter of Nagasaki. Spring is coming. Anyway, as you are probably uh, aware, Gary, um, and our our listener probably is aware as well. The figures coming out of China are very different at the moment. So somebody in The Spectator asked the question, why is the situation in China so much better? And he said, well, there are three possible answers. The first one is that the situation isn't any better at all. It's just that the numbers are being thoroughly massaged and we have no reason, we shouldn't believe a thing out of China. And he said, well, <clears throat> his observation, that was, that's a reasonable position. And there's no doubt that we have every every right to be very suspicious of the Chinese numbers about anything and everything, including their economy and productivity, etc. But he said, well, when the thing was surging and they were reporting 3,000 new cases a day, they were reporting 3,000 new cases a day. And that might have been actually 5,000 new cases a day. So why they suddenly would have decided to turn around now and say, at the time, I think they had gone down to 130, and then I think, in fact, they were down to less than 100 new cases. There were new being reported in Wuhan. There was only a handful being reported in the province of Hubei, which is Hubei. And then the rest of China was almost nothing. He said, well, maybe it's because the containment process has been effective. These drastic uh, close-down that they had affected, uh, this was actually hitting in. He said, well, but there was another possibility. Um, spring has arrived in Hubei. Uh, that part, particular that part of China, spring comes a little bit earlier than others internally, and then there's this. I don't know. There may be a phone effect there as the wind comes down off the mountain. And temperatures had from gone up from a, a cold and wintry point to a, a more pleasant 14 degrees. Now, so that got me wondering. Well, what's the story? So anyway, for the point of view of that Gary, for the next three or four or five days, I should imagine. We will be. We should be able to answer the question, and I'm fingers and toes crossed that the answer is indeed that the spring coming has had a substantial. Will have a substantial effect because uh, the country now, I 
think with the highest out well we won't outside Iran is Italy. And spring has been rather late coming to the north of Italy. It's one of the nicer things about living in the north of Italy is that while the winter is worse than Ireland in the sense that it's colder, uh, you get snow more often and proper snow more often in Milan than you would in Dublin. And it rains and it's foggy. All of the fog is kind of atmospheric. Spring comes earlier than here. And once it comes, it kind of comes properly. It doesn't hang around to the end of May waiting for winter to be over. So it has been cold until this week. Temperatures now are up around 16, 17. I think today the weather forecast is giving 19 degrees. And for the next week or so, it's 19, 18 degrees. Certainly up around the level that Hubei is at. So we will get an answer. Now, if you're like me and you go online and you ask the question, so what's the story with um, this thing and the weather? It's like everything, you know, there's a lot of non, I mean, I, I don't know, have you come across any good, I, I've had a few uh, pretty good nonsense uh, piece of advice on this, Gary. Have you seen anything, I don't know, online that is... Good or nonsense? Well, nonsense-wise, yeah, I mean, but good nonsense. Pascal said something of a, a great deal of nonsense, mm-hmm. where he, he was saying that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't uh, throttle flights from Italy. And then he started going on about, imagine if if the situations were reversed and Italy started to ban flights from Ireland, how would that would make us feel? And it seemed to give him the impression that we're not doing it because it might hurt the Italians' feelings. <laughs> yeah. And the... To which I think most people responded with, well, I mean, if we'd put our country into lockdown due to a, you know, a, uh, a potentially deadly virus, I think we'd probably understand. I don't know. I think there was a period, right? I don't think it's true anymore because, in my understanding, I got a message from a friend of mine in Milan saying that Linate is closed. But I think there was actually a period where um, the Italians, you couldn't, you couldn't, if you were living in, say, if you're living in um, Lodi, you couldn't go from you couldn't leave Lodi and, and, and go to say Bologna or something, but you could go from Linate uh, to Dublin. Uh, so the people, the, the Irish were letting people in, but the Italians weren't. It was a slightly odd situation. Uh, there was the whole of the north has been closed down now. Lombardy is closed. Uh, Milan is closed. The train stations. There's talk now. People are there's that yet a situation that the night that they made a rather odd decision. Rather than just coming out and saying, okay, we're now closed, they came out uh, 12 hours before and says, "At in 12 hours, we will be closed. Now, Gary, picture the scene. It's uh, it's lunchtime, it's Dublin, and our great leader comes out and says, well, because of health concerns, we're closing Dublin at midnight tonight. Any guess of what might happen? I think that we would uh, we would accept the need for that to happen in the interest of public health. And orderly uh, fall in line. Exactly. That's exactly what uh, would happen here and what did happen in, in Milan. Um, and I'm sure there all of the stories about tens of thousands of people getting immediately in their cars and driving as quickly as they could out the fuck of the city, that's all just nasty, <laughs> malicious talk. Anyway, the president of the, Pul- the region of Puglia, which is the heel bit, if you imagine the boot of Italy, and a very nice place it is too, um, so issued a presidential decree saying we would like to advise our brothers and sisters in the north of Italy that they can't come here. We are closing Puglia. And anybody from any of the following 12 provinces is not allowed in. So, you know, a lot of internal fraternal love going on at the moment in Italy. Mm. But Simon Harris, you know, is keeping himself busy tweeting about misleading alcohol ads. So, ah, oh, oh, sweet, on top Jesus. of it, on top of it. By the way, you know, we, there's a big problem at the moment in this country of trying to get hold of things like hand sanitizer or even uh, face mask. Well, face masks, yes, but certain because well, it depends if you if you know somebody, Gary, who worked in St Luke's. You know, there's you you might have a connection there. Some of our decent ordinary criminals stolen the masks from the cancer hospital. Anyway, one thing we do actually produce in this country is alcohol. How hard would it? I, mean, I, I just think there's an there's an there's an opportunity here for 
a United for Irish distillers just to say, you know what, we're going to make just thousands and thousands of little bottles of uh, little spray bottles of seventy percent alcohol. There doesn't have to be age. It just had just alcohol. They'd send them out little labels on the Irish distillers. Keep safe. I think it's an it's a it's a marketing opportunity that's being missed there. But anyway, the question is whether or not we're going to see it. And now the reason I asked about it because I said one of the really problematic things in, about the information here is you got a lot of people telling you that if you drink warm tea every quarter of an hour you'll be all right probably because the tea will wash the ba- the viruses into your stomach where the acids will kill them now it is true that this particular virus only lives basically in uh, airwaves and in the lungs won't be in the stomach but the notion that you're just going to you can just wash it down into your tummy I, i'm unconvinced that it was very not just on them, is that just it ain't true? You got stuff which is kind of half right and half wrong. Zinc lozenges are probably helpful. Vitamin D supplements have been shown to be good for people with respiratory. There are all these, there's, uh, and then there are the cures, the usual cures like boiled garlic water and Chinese, ancient Chinese medicine. So, but then you have the problem that sometimes you have actual proper experts with PhDs and proper stuff. And everybody, and they're, but they're all giving different opinions. So, say, on the issue of the seasonality, there's a paper from Harvard suggesting because we don't have, this is a completely new virus, and because we don't have any kind of immunity in the larger population, and because it's not a, it's just different, and it's not a flu, it's that there's no reason to believe that it will actually be susceptible to increased temperatures, and that the degree to which flu, uh, the viruses are affected by the warmer weather is probably as much to do with social behaviour, the fact that people spend time outdoors, etc., rather than... Itself. Other people say, no, no. <clears throat> There's no reason to believe that this is going to be any... It's going to be a weird or different to other similar viruses, and if that is the case... Apparently, I hadn't, this was news to me, Gary. I don't know if you, you know many things, so... You may have knew this. That one of the reasons why it's um, better, flu survives better, is because flu viruses, as this virus is, not a flu virus, but this virus is, is has a fatty protective coating, much like myself. Uh, and when it gets warm, this degrades. In a study by Harvard, uh, it showed that at 6 degrees Celsius in dry weather, and it prefers dry weather, and generally speaking, when the weather is cold, it's the air is dry in very cold weather it's very dry weather whereas when you get warmer weather it tends to be more humidity in the air there's more uh, vapor in there that uh it survived on the surface for more than 23 hours but a temperature of 32 degrees celsius not so in ireland hmm, that it was dying within an hour now the thing is you say 32 degrees celsius which is 90 fahrenheit that's not going to happen here however in bright sunlight on surfaces will reach that kind of temperature even if the out if the air temperature is much lower you know like if you had you know the kind of day when it's 22 23 24 degrees if you put your hand on a car the bottom of a car that's been sitting in the sun for a long time it can be very warm so there is reason to hope gary did you hear anything any of the details about people getting food deliveries i didn't know well, well, what's this e- e- they're talking about you know, the fact that obviously in the, if people have to self-isolate they will need food and that food will have to be delivered so that well, supermarkets lot of supermarkets and others will, will deliver and you can get that organized but that they said it's important that you arrange that it's left on a step you know so that there isn't contact between the person who's isolating and the person doing the delivery so, but on the other hand, if someone self one thing I noticed was that uh, on one piece of advice which I, I saw was that you should leave it aside when the, your, your groceries, is, you should be left aside in a safe place for four hours because of the possibility that there might be uh, viral contamination on the surface of your, your, your goods. But there's another one. Like I've seen some places say... It'll last for 15 hours on metal surfaces, but maybe in an hour others. The University of Griefswald in uh, northern Germany 
has published a list where it says that it lasts on services for five days on metal, four days on wood, four days on paper, five days on paper, four days on glass, nine days, nine days on plastic, five days on PVC, eight hours on latex gloves, two days on disposable gowns, five days on ceramics and five days on Teflon. You know we're being advised to cough into our elbow. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a virologist over in California saying that if you can at all, you should cough or sneeze not into your elbow, but into a disposable tissue, which you then dispose of safely and immediately. Because if you do it into your elbow, then you're putting it onto the fabric where it can stay for six days. Mm. And therefore, that's a bad thing. And that seems like a reasonable observation. Obviously, any kind of washing and detergent apparently will will kill this. So, anyway, my hope is that uh, and I mean, just, that while Harvard is not hap- is not is not very sanguine or hopeful, um, Dr. Michael Skinner, who is a reader in virology in the Imperial College London, which is a very very good school, is that. He says, quote, my considered opinion is that the physical, its physical nature means that it will probably become seasonal when it eventually settles down to the normal pattern of transmission, which we see for other human respiratory coronaviruses. Now, he also goes on to add that it does not mean that it will follow seasonal dynamics through the large epidemics we are now currently beginning to see in countries. There may be just too many people infected so that most transmission in short range are less subject to environmental constraints. The consensus does seem to be that this is something which is here to stay. It's just going to become an endemic virus in the population like the flu. But as we build up a wider, is would it be a herd immunity in this case? Mm-hmm. A wider herd immunity or, not, <clears throat> or a vi- an immune reaction? immune reaction within the wider population that the uh, fatality rates will go down significantly well i mean on the uh, on the uh, the seasonality of it obviously we don't have any research on that and obviously there's no people who are immune to it well there will be no widespread immunity to it um it would be interesting to see how it is spreading in africa and certain parts of Asia. That's what I've been wondering about. You know, is higher. What's, now, the, what's I, I, the story in Equatorial Guinea? You know, where you have very high levels of uh, air humidity and high and 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 and, and warm temperatures. You would expect to be a significant amount of coronavirus um, cases in Africa, because Africa is um, China is the top trading partner of the continent a lot of chinese people going back and forth to africa all all the time so there are cases across africa but there are not as many as we're expected now that may be due to an issue of heat but equally it could be an issue with testing absolutely yeah although you would imagine uh, listen we don't know Uh, we have a week in front of us where if it is made more if it is shall we say affected its vigor is affected put it that way if its vigor is affected by a change in temperatures and higher air temperatures then this week in milan the 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 new cases should tell us something it'll be interesting to watch the numbers so it is also i mean the average uh, age in most african countries yes younger people is, is, is in compared to somewhere like italy is incredibly young i mean there are parts of italy where the Fatality rate is up to about six percent, but Italy's population is so old. It's very actually, old. that's one advantage that Ireland has. We have a younger population than pretty much anywhere else in Europe. Uh, the Italian, the uh, yeah, the the, the the Italian demographic pyramid is very different. Although, just and this is nothing to do with the virus, but Spain this year out passed out Italy as the country with the longest. To the best, uh, what's the phrase, More, uh, average um, lifespan. That's the terribly difficult phrase I was trying to find. With the, with the longest average lifespan, slightly, is just ticked by Italy, which had had that crown for some quite some time. So, but yeah, but the Italians are, are old. And the north of Italy would be, again, older than, uh, say, somewhere like Calabria or, or Puglia. So we shall see. I, I will be keeping my fingers crossed and... My toes and saying my novenas that uh, this indeed will disappear 
much like a vampire before the rays of the spring sun. Hmm. Anyway, tell me about free speech, Gary. I'm just trying to put together that metaphor in my head. You know what, vamp- but don't vampires go poof when they're exposed to sunshine? In the spring sun? Well, yes, because we're talking about spring in this particular instance. Oh, I see. I thought it was a core component of your metaphor. No, the sun is the principal, uh, the principal element of the metaphor, not the spring sun. But in this case, it's the spring sun which is coming out of the gloom of the dark winter, you see. I see. Where the vampires could happily frolic. And that's that's fairly tortured. I didn't bring werewolves into it at all. I think I was successful. Right, well, I suppose we'll have to move on rather than dissect that. Silver bullets, you see. I was thinking silver bullets. But I didn't, I didn't go to silver bullets. And I didn't go to were- werewolves. And I think that was... Uh, mm. That was laudatory. Anyway, go on. Talk to me about... I was going to say Roman Polanski. It's not Roman Polanski. It's Woody Allen. No, but I could see why you would think it would be. Similar in this regard. It's Woody Allen. Woody Allen has a new memoir coming out. It turns out it's on the same... Uh, it was from the same publisher as Ronan Farrow, who is arguably Woody Allen's son. Although I think the common assumption is that he's actually Frank Sinatra's son. But anyway. Sorry? So, what? Are we, are, are we doing showbiz gossip? No. Is that, I don't, I don't, is, that, is that showbiz gossip? How old is Ronan Farrow? Ronan Farrow? Oh, he's uh, in his 30s. And is, this is the son of Mia Farrow? And was Mia Farrow supposed to have had an affair with Sinatra? Yes. And Sinatra, and she had a son. Mia, Far- Mia Farrow has said that um, he could be the child of Frank Sinatra. And how old would Sinatra have been? Sinatra? Yeah, when this... Old. Pretty old. I mean, although... Anyway, Woody Allen has said, I believe the phrase was, I wouldn't bet my life on him being my son. Well, hmm, I would have thought that what you, you really want to say is biological son there because you know isn't what you're supposed to say is of course he's my son he's my son and i love him but he may not be in my mind so sinatra would have probably been in his 70s so this would have happened when in about 32 years ago so sinatra died in 98 mm-hmm. so he was whatever age he was when he died in 98, he was born in... I mean, it's not really relevant to the to the discussion, is Yeah, it? but far more interesting. So, so 88, 83. So he would have been late, mid-70s anyway. God. Well, so was Charlie Chaplin, of course. Charlie Chaplin was in his 70s and he was still having children. So anyway, this this Farrow person has a, uh, a contract. Farrow is an investigative reporter. He broke a lot of um, the Me Too stuff. And, of course, there are the familial circumstances involving Woody Allen and his wife, who was his stepdaughter, although I'm not sure if that was actually ever official. And then there are also the claims of sexual assault against the other daughter, against Mia Farrow's daughter, uh, which Allen says was a plot by Farrow to discredit him. So it's, it's a clusterfuck. It's just a, it's a weird family. Right, okay. But anyway, so it came out that uh, Hatchet was going to publish Woody Allen's uh, memoir, and Ronan Farrow didn't like that, and neither did uh, Mia Farrow. So uh, they basically complained. His memoir is called A Propus of Nothing, if anyone cares to read it when it actually exists. So he complained, then other people complained, then staff started complaining, and eventually they pulled a decision to... um, to publish the book, they they cancelled the book. Now he can shop it around to another to another publisher. It's probably not even going to inconvenience him that much. But it was worthwhile because several authors took this poorly because they basically made the point. Like Stephen King particularly said, "Well, if you don't like it, don't buy it, but don't try and stop it existing because you know that's censorship." Yeah. And anyway, so the the Irish Independent. Basically just went to a number of people in the Irish publishing scene and so asked just, them sorry, sorry, what, just what they for, thought of that. Yeah, for clarity here. So these people, had, had they bought the manuscript? They bought the manuscript and then said they weren't going to publish it. But have they relinquished the rights to the manuscript? I don't know, but I would imagine so, because I haven't heard anything about it. So he can publish it, just not with them. Hmm. But yeah, so then they went to the, the Irish publishing industry and asked them, you know, well, what do you think of that? 
Uh, and the general position was that um, this is fine. This is absolutely fine. And it's not a free speech issue because who was it? It was um, it was the Sarah Davis Goff, co-owner of Tramp Press, said that um, this is not the same as censorship. And free speech is about the right to communicate ideas and opinions without fear of being persecuted by the government. She also said that she would argue she hasn't even he hasn't even been deplatformed. Um, and may, she said, I'm honestly not sure it's possible for even a relatively wealthy man to be censored. That's just silly. And whatever about anything else, that's that's just silly. Of course it is. And then Mariel Deegan, who's the general manager at New Ireland Books, also says it's not an attack on free speech because there was no injunction against publication. And this this I find interesting purely for this. There is the American conception of the First Amendment, which is the amendment that guarantees a freedom of speech. What it actually does is uh, give you freedom from government interference in your speech. And there's become this weird thing where as, as American culture has become more and more important to Ireland, people have started to think that that is all that freedom of speech is. The freedom of speech is merely the government not interfering and not punishing you for saying something. Even in countries in which the First Amendment does not exist and there is there is not that sort of um of blanket protection of it from the government. But the issue is it's it's not. That's freedom of speech includes uh, freedom of expression, more generally, would be would include protection from the government punishing you for the things you say. But beyond that it's also a political and philosophical idea that says that people should be able to articulate opinions in a social and political uh, situation. So you basically argues that there should be a certain willingness inside society to allow things to be said on a social level that they don't agree with in order to keep the society functioning, particularly as the society becomes more and more multicultural and there is therefore more and more disagreement on social issues. And we seem to have just jettisoned that part of it. Now, I suspect we've jettisoned that part of it because it's Woody Allen and they don't like Woody Allen, which uh, I'm going to take from uh, when Davis Goff was asked, would she publish him? She said, no, we have a pretty strict no asshole rule. Okay, but what's your contention here? Is that you have a right to publication? No, no, no. The only thing I care about here is that people involved in publishing have no idea what free expression is. I I I get that there are two, there's a very a very diff, it's a very legalistic understanding. Yeah, I, I think that's true. That it, <coughs> they see <coughs> their understanding of free speech seems to be the the understanding you got you'd get from a libel lawyer. Um, it like, what was the last one he said? Because there had been no injunction. There had been no injunction against publication, and therefore it was not an attack on free speech. That's a very weird. That's a weird definition, indeed, of free speech. But also, I mean, they these people talk about the Catholic Church having the power to censor. Yeah. <laughs> and how that was that was yeah. an example of an attack on free speech. But that oftentimes was not a legal thing. They didn't legally say you couldn't publish. There was social pressure. Yeah, they're social and economic. And the definition that she has used earlier is not an attack on free speech. I think that's the issue here. These people think that uh, Woody Allen is an asshole. is probably a fair bet, but therefore it doesn't matter when these things are done to him. Whereas I imagine if it was one of their authors, there would be a very different approach to this, and it wouldn't be, well, no, this is perfectly fine, and, you know, they have wealth, and therefore, you know, it, it's not censorship. She brings up Edna O'Brien. Yeah. But she also says that a rich person, even a moderately rich person, well, she said rich man, but I'm going to assume she meant person, can't be censored. But then she complains about Edna O'Brien being censored. But Edna O'Brien got a fair bit of money. Yeah, but when Edna was censored, it's like out in old God's time. When Edna was censored, when even... Censored. The country girls were censored. I imagine. I don't. I don't even know. It was socially censored, certainly because it was regarded as being a, a dirty book. But Jesus, like the, the country girls was was published before I was born. It's nineteen sixty, I think. You know, it's six sixty years ago. I mean, really, that's you. It's a long time since Edna O'Brien was 
censored. I might add on the critical note, I think it's a long time since Edna O'Brien was edited as well. But there you go. Uh, not that the Country of Girls wasn't a, a decent book, but it wasn't as cheesy. <coughs> it wasn't Steinbeck. I don't... You're, the whole thing about the free... It, we have it... We do have an odd attitude in some ways to free speech, which is informed on, in some ways... I mean, you meet people uh, by the, say, by a relationship with the United States. You meet young persons, shall we say, uh, to the right here. Uh, and, it, and it is, I mean, this is something I have commented about many times and for some time, and I'm far from unique in it, that it's a curiosity that the people speaking up for free speech these days are people on the right, that it's become kind of a pet topic for people on the right to be banging on about free speech and that the controllers and the censors are all on the left. When I was growing up, it was the other way around. People on the right were uh, in there in the Irish, uh, the Irish censors office chopping up films or in, say, in the case of uh, The Life of Brian on the back of a campaign organised by Father Brian Darcy uh, because it was blasphemous, getting The Life of Brian banned. I think it was still banned when I was in school, and we used to get we had, we were, we watched illegal pirate copies of that month, that very wonderful film. But it's a cliche of life, isn't it? That the censor is shall we? He's a bit of a he's a the censor is in a sense a, a social card. Wherever the wherever the power goes, there goes the censor. And the social certainly again, if you're talking, you talked about social power, didn't you, Gary? If it's not mm. legal power, and I would say that it's a reasonable thing to say that today the social power lies to the left. I mean, yeah, I, I take your point on that. I think that's generally what you find. Free speech is worth the most to the people who do not have social or cultural power, rather than political power, because it is that broader sense of, of free speech. Even the legal thing, you're right there. You know, this, we are so used to listening to people talk about the United States and there's the speech thing there, that there's a weird notion that somehow if we don't conform to the same level as the United States, that uh, we are somehow lacking. For example, it's it's you can publish anything in the United States, can't you? Pretty well. I mean, you, you there are defamation and there are, well, I think it's in Ireland is defamation, but there it's still libel and slander. But in the, but I mean, the First a, Amendment, as a political, uh, if you're talking at say a political philosophical level, like there's absolutely nothing that will stop you publishing Mein Kampf. No, the the First Amendment gives incredible leeway to people to say things, both politically and otherwise. Um, if you're talking libel and defamation, for if you're if you're a public figure in the United States, yeah, the standard is um, incredibly high too. Uh, you, you really you have to. Sh- it's almost it's more like nineteenth century stuff here. You have to show malice. It has to be intentional. It has to be demonstrably false. It's a much higher standard. It's very hard to libel or defame a public person in the United States. We have our own guarantees, of course. Here that um, the Constitution, in I think, is Article Forty, so um, Section Six, that the state would guarantee the liberty of the exercise of uh, people to express their opinions and their convictions. But like everything in the Irish Constitution, it's subject to the uh, to the common good and anything that... Uh, now, there is one little thing in it. Was it, well, it, it does specifically say somewhere that you have to... You know, the organ, the press is really important, so it has to be... There has to, You have to be careful about it. But you have the, the right to liberty of expression, including... Criticism of government policy shall not be used to undermine, but it does actually. The, the, the criticism of government is is particularly protected. Obviously, it allows for it allows for control for censorship. I think uh, the kind of the view that you seem to be getting is that it's a bit like a negative and a positive thing, isn't it? Negative rights and positive rights. That their understanding of freedom of speech is one. Which is it's a rather it's a it's a question of constraint that freedom of speech exists where nobody is being tied up rather than thinking that freedom of speech is something that we should actually positively encourage. Yeah, I mean, I'm not suggesting for a second that Alan has a right to this platform or any platform. What I am saying is that if we, it's free speech should be understood as something that is to be 
protected in the broader philosophical and political sense, and there needs to be space for reasonable dissent and for people who are not liked to still be able to do things and not have um, things pulled out from under them or people refuse to deal with them purely based on their reputation. And it's a very popular thing with people to say, like, we're not infringing on your free speech. We just don't want you here and we don't want anyone who will deal with you. And while that's not a breach of the First Amendment because it's not a government function, it is absolutely against the principles of free speech in the broader sense. Within reasonable constraints. Within reasonable. Uh, yeah, I also, I think, my, I, my concern, I, more that I think it's also, it's bad, it's bad for public policy, it's probably pretty bad for society, that you could effectively close down heterodox opinion. If you, you have to create space, you have to allow spaces where people, not just allow spaces, but create space, actively create spaces where people can contend the consensus. Right, it, it's partially... It's just, it's bad for us if we don't. If we all agree, we're going to get it wrong, and occasionally we're going to get it wrong and spectacularly. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's what happens if you have an incredibly homogeneous society that starts doing this. You'll, you'll cut out any of the radicals or, or the reformers or anyone who doesn't have social prestige. But if you are in a society where there are legitimate differences of opinions like let's take america or a lot of europe at the minute about certain issues ranging from transgenderism to uh, immigration policy to really the direction of these countries Mm -hmm. and you have a situation where you have shown you will pull things if pressure is applied on you and people want to make a political point yeah it won't just happen in one direction all of the sides will start applying uh, pressure to you eventually and if it doesn't they, if it only happens it, it'll probably at any one time only ha- mostly happen in one direction but the circle will the wheel will turn and it will happen the other way around well i mean what you're starting to see in america now is conservative groups having speakers no platformed or having things removed because they'll say it's it's a threat to their feelings <laughs> and the left are going to turn and go no no it's not they'll go yes it is it's at least as true for us as was when you got our speakers shut down and then you just end up one against all red and tooth and claw kind of area because then it's just a power struggle yes and uh, it's just uh... i mean it is like to be fair i find the american situation quite funny now in that you're seeing people who you're seeing the left having their people having things pulled from their past and having things broken brought up with an extent to have them cancelled. And there seems to be a sort of, we didn't think you could do this to us. Well... It was more of a no, they didn't do it to you. I never... But now they are. I n- you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's such a cliche, you know, when they, they came for X, then they came for Y, then they came for me. I remember having a dis- discussion with lads about, do you, the, 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 a certain organ in the country were connected to a certain small group men would occasionally decide that a business or a person was homophobic and they shouldn't shouldn't do business with them you know i i always i have always felt very very other than the fact that on principle i agree with oakshot michael oakshot the conservative philosopher that you know the philosophy that politics is should only ever be a, a part of our lives and that we should be very careful to keep it in its box and not let it leak out so we must have large areas of social of our of, of, of social discourse where people can come together and meet on the basis of their mutual love for wine or chess or soccer or rugby football whatever the heck it is and that's not polluted or diluted by the presence of politics but anyway do you remember the case of the uh, the the christian uh, stationers oh yes in dublin wasn't it yeah and they wouldn't do stationery for a... No, wasn't was it? Was it? No, it was, it was far more serious than that, Gary. Cake toppers? Cake toppers. Cake toppers. There was a, 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 a lady who was specialised in making cake toppers. And since we were at that stage in the run-up... An honourable trade. Yeah, an ancient, the ancient trade of cake topping maker. Uh, uh, she had decided that she wanted... She, he he used the man in the shop used because they used to do a lot of 
wedding related stuff and they did very nice wedding stationery they would occasionally have these little mini mini wedding fairs in the shop where people who were connected to all of the paraphernalia that go at weddings could display their wares in the shop so somebody might have a who made very lovely wedding cakes could bring a cake in and somebody who made lovely flowers could bring in lovely flowers. Whatever it is that go at weddings, I don't worry. I'm not a wedding expert, not a wedding organiser like Frank. Uh, and one of the people that used to was this person. And they came in because it was leading up to the marriage referendum, not in, imminently, but it was, it, was, it was heading there. A male, male cake topper. And the man in the shop said he'd prefer if she didn't do that because he didn't want to be perceived as taking a position on what was a, a contentious social issue. He didn't want it to be political. Now, it was also the case that the man was um, uh, quite a uh, pra- serious uh, practicing Christian slash Catholic. And he may have been actually uh, philosophically opposed to the change in the law regarding marriage. Anyway... This, he was he was outed because of this rank, horrible homophobia, even though he dealt with gay clients and had gay employees and every blah, blah, blah. Now, it hasn't happened yet. And you might say, well, where is it going to happen? But the more these things happen, the more I think to myself, do you know what? One of these days, one of these days, what's left of the Irish right, whether it's 35% of the population or 30% of the population, whatever it is, will kick and somebody will be running a business in Uchtarard or Balhadrine or Letterkenny or Ballyshannon, you know, and they'll have some sign up in their shop of their support for a political issue, which is a, 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 close to the heart of the Irish left. And the local persons will decide, you know what, we're, we're not going to support that. We're not going to support a business that publicly endorses that. And, you know, you don't have to be 100% of the population or 95% of the population, Gary, for the absence of your business to be enough to sink a business. If a third of your customers suddenly went away, and if you're in maybe Uchtarard, half of your customers or more, depending on what your business was, it'll sink you. It's a, it's only because conservatives tend to be less organized and maybe nicer that they haven't done it. But it's happening in the States right now, I think, you're, as you say. And I think it could happen here. Eventually, people will just get pissed off with always being the ones that get the shitty end of the stick. I mean, the um, let's take the also. It's very, it's very fun to do it to people who have done it to other people. Yeah, it is because then you can say, well, no, this shouldn't happen, but you did it. So let like the the story I wrote on Rita Cronin, where about things she put forward about Jews and things like that. Yeah. Originally, I wasn't going to um, publish that because I thought it was it was old and interesting thing about there is that Rita Cronin is in favour of hate speech laws. Yeah. So Rita Cronin believes that you should be criminalised for what you or that the public at large should face potential criminalisation based on what they say, even if it is their legitimately held opinion. Yes. At which point it became, went from, well, it's old, to, well, she's a parliamentarian. She thinks the public should face criminalisation. Therefore, it is both fair and rather fun to pull the thing she said into the light. And that's the problem there. Because once you start doing it, someone eventually has to stop doing it. And it always, well, it takes more moral courage and more moral depth to stop than ever than it does perhaps not to start. Well, I mean, you also need to you need to think that your opponent will stop if you stop. So, for instance, I mean, I think the right for years across America went, we don't want to do this. Uh, it, it's not how society should function. Yes, it's being done to us, but eventually the opposing side will see that you know the cancellations and the no platforming and the censorship and the pulling things up to have people removed from their positions is not how you should go, and they'll stop. And they got about somewhere in the region of three to five years and then sort of went, okay, that's not stopping. It's, I mean, there is that joyful moment. It's not to do with specific, this issue, but do you remember when they, the Democrats decided in the Senate, well, I think it was the Senate, that they were, they were going to do away with the tradition of the supermajority? I do. I, I also remember Mitch McConnell's uh, quote yes. when they were doing it. If you do this, you will regret it, and you will regret it sooner than you think. And how long was it before they were re- regretting it? Well, I mean, considering Trump is now um, 
His judges are probably, what, 15 to 20% of the federal judiciary? I'd say they're regretting it pretty heavily right I, now. I think they were. It was within, within a year, around a year later, it wasn't much more than a year anyway, that you had a new Senate and Republicans in, and they were doing something, I think, possibly. Whatever. Was it was it federal judge? Was it the Supreme Court? I can't remember. But oh, the, yeah, no, it was it the was, Supreme Court. It was the Supreme, and rather than him having to get whatever it was, 60... It's simple majority. And they're going, no, no, you can't do this, you can't do this. Oh, well. This, this is an attack upon the Republic. <laughs> yeah, well, lads, that's what happens if you take the pin out of the grenade. It tends to, it, it will explode. And I mean, like, this, I think the problem here is that after taking kicks from people for years, it does become fun to do it to them because you get this sort of shocked. I never thought tigers would eat my face when I voted for the tigers eating people's faces party. There is that, yeah, that baffled. It's it's initially. It's not just. It's not hurt or outraged. It's baffled. But what's what what's happening now? This I don't know. And that is joyful. Consequences to my actions. It's like that look of the face of sort of the putative bully having a fight with the smaller the small guy, and the, guy, the small guy turns out to be a a light a lightweight boxer. And starts leathering around the face. Just for the first few seconds, the bully looks go the coin. No, no, no! This isn't what happens. <laughs> this isn't what happens. No, I, happens. I hit you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I do. Do I assume you remember those debates? And it was it was about like no platforming things. Yeah, yeah. It was about how people on the right should not engage in that kind of behaviour. Because it, it was contrary to certain principles. It was lowering and the moral It, it was lowering the discourse. And then after a couple of years, people eventually started to go, but they're not going to stop. They're just punching us in the face repeatedly. And we're basically saying, well, we can't lower ourselves to response. But if we don't lower ourselves to response, they're never going to stop. So if we actually want the situation to stop, we're going to have to hit them a couple of times. Many years ago, I was at an Irish pub in Milan, and I saw I, I I saw this brought out in the flesh and embodied. There was a oh, he was a there was a man in it who wasn't widely liked, and he became he wasn't a guy, bad guy who was sober. He was a couple of bottles of Bex, and he would turn into an absolute prick. But he was around six foot four, and he was a big guy. He was a gym bunny, and he used to physically intimidate. You know, he was like he, he never I never actually saw him do anything, but he would kind of stand over people and make. And he tattoos the. I think he told people he'd been in the Foreign Legion. I suspect the closest thing he'd been to the Foreign Legion was a week's holiday in Marrakesh. But anyway, there was one evening. I don't know if, if, what, why or what. If there was an, a, a match on somewhere, there was a a a week a week champion. I he was from somewhere in the north. I have a notion he was from Donegal, but he might have been from Belfast. Anyway, he was. I remember shorter than me. I'm a generous, one hundred and sixty-five centimeters tall. But he sort of made a wiry guy. Transpired he was also, whatever, a bantamweight? Is, is that, would that be right? Bantamweight, yeah. He was a bantamweight boxer, and he was in, like, the top five bantamweight boxers in the world at the time. And your man was, he was just going up to get a drink, and this guy was there, and he was pushed. Uh, he didn't know who the fuck he was. You know those bar stools that have, like, a, a bar at the bottom and a step, something, you know, across the top? <laughs> It was like something under Bruce Lee. One foot went into one and he got up. and Because he, he basically had to climb like a foot and a half up. He was like up in the air. Boom, boom. Broke your man's nose, dropped down. And the look, as I said before, the look not of of pain or, or distress, but the look of what the fuck just happened? And the little guy stood there with his arms folded, waiting for the reaction as if to say, now. Are we going to have any more trouble from you? And your man just put his hand over the, the now bloody nose and fled the pub. It was quite fun. But that, I've always lived that, that look, I always associate with these people. That's Because that's not what's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to do that. There is a plan out here and it's it's we do that to you and then you fall over and then we grow in power and we win. And you you don't get to fight back. Niamh uh, Brin wrote a, a rather nice piece in Gripped, I thought. Oh, was it on Justine McCarthy? Yes. Oh, that was... That was so just for the listener, John McGurk wrote a piece on Kate O'Connell. And it was about why Kate O'Connell lost her seat. And mostly about how internally she was perceived in Fine Gael. 
Justine McCarthy, in response, wrote an article, but it, it wasn't it wasn't personal. It it may have been you know kicking a person when they're down, but at no point did John give an opinion or say anything unfair about Kate. It was just here is what people say about Kate, and it's not great. Justine McCarthy wrote an article titled, I think it was, uh, "We Need Women Like Kate O'Connell to Save Us from the John McGurks of This World," and it was a, it was a personalized attack on John McGurk. She went right after him, implied she didn't, uh, he didn't like women. Also, did you know, like, that, the way that article talked about Kate O'Connell was weird. Like, it sounded like Justine McCarthy wanted to climb inside Kate O'Connell's body and wear her skin. <laughs> she was like, she was talking about how beautiful Kate is, and she was like, and her sweet but fragrant scent. And I was like, what? Yeah, okay. That's a bit creepy. Okay, okay Justine. There's a little bit of silence of the lambs there. <laughs> it was. Like, yeah. Okay, I know you want to defend her, but you you got yeah. just you calm down. Like you started with with her virtues, and then she started getting to how good she smells. Yeah. But um, yeah. So she wrote this very personalized attack on John McGurk and Nevu Brinon, who had previously sued Justine McCarthy, um, the newspaper that McCarthy was writing for for defamation, wrote an article. And it was something like, what was this? Um, John Mc- at least John McGurk has never been sued for libel uh, for defaming a woman yes John yeah so Justin's thing was John McGurk tearing down women it was just well you've had a formal like you've been sued for tearing down women I don't I, I think in Justine's articles was there something about that we need uh, uh, was it a strong opinionated women or something like that and Neve's uh, take on it seemed to be well do we need strong opinionated women or do we need only certain types of strong opinionated women because i'm a strong opinionated woman you don't seem to like me yeah i mean i don't seem to remember justine being terribly supportive of any woman who had different views than her on a number of issues well you know what can you do they're displaying false consciousness they have internalized the patriarchy and they're manifesting their own self-hatred and self-enslavement to the structures of the oppressor's power but it was it was very funny and i would imagine that mccarthy had the same reaction when she saw the response of what (laughs) no i i i attack you in print you don't get to go at me however however there is no such thing as bad publicity and the fact that uh, McGurk and Gript are getting that kind of published reaction in the newspapers can only be good for the for the platform. I mean, I think at this point the Phoenix has a desk for Gript. Because <laughs> they just keep going. Really? Yeah. But anyway, as McCarthy says, O'Connell's political career may be dead, but long live O'Connell. Well, indeed. I'm sure we all wish her the very best of health. And also, along ladies a- and gentlemen, adjust your taste buds. Right. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Well, Sheila will, I suppose. Um, I, we shall be back to entertain and to illuminate, as usual, on uh, Sunday. So I'd like to wish everybody uh, out there a good week and stay calm and stay well in the midst of all of this flux and flu. Hmm. So goodbye now and we'll talk again on Sunday. All of it.